Because faith comes through hearing the message of Christ, this sermon has been uploaded for you by Grace Unlimited, a ministry that functions out of Living Hope Church, Pretoria, South Africa. We want Jesus Christ to have first place in everything in our church. And we want to help you know and follow Jesus in all of life and to help others do the same. Find out more or download many more free sermons at graceunlimited.co.za or livinghopechurch.co.za. Good morning, everyone. Blessed Good Friday to you all. What a, what a wonderful privilege we have because we, of all people, believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have hope today. What a terrible, what a terrible reality that there's a world at large that does not know Christ and has no hope, has no joy today, just another public holiday, another day off. And today, on Good Friday, my whole aim in this short message that I'd like to deliver to you today, my whole aim is for you to just take one more look at the Lord Jesus Christ and see Him as glorious and see Him as beautiful and see Him not only as glorious and beautiful, but to see Him in complete contrast to yourself and to myself. As I look at my own life during the week and as I look at my whole life, I see failure upon failure. I see weakness upon weakness. I see good intention that fails after good intention that fails. I see a life that to a large degree has been wasted. And I'm sure there's not a single one of us that on our deathbeds are going to say, I did everything to the fullest. I lived my life to the full. I achieved everything I want to, wanted to achieve. I think we're going to look back on our deathbeds and we're going to say, oh, my life is a string of failures. My life is a string of impotencies where I didn't achieve my best results and my best desires. And in contrast to that, I want to show you not only the Lord Jesus Christ and how He lives His life to the full, how he achieves the highest goal that God could have set for a man. And he not only achieves that, but he achieves it for you and me as well. I mean, what, a, what a reality. I can stand before God as a man who has achieved God's highest goal for my life. Even though I'm a failure, I can do that because Jesus is not a failure. And I find joy in that today. I, I really rejoice in that. What a blessing. And I'm just going to take a cue today from somebody I was uh, trying to decide what to preach today and Sarah recommended a, a text that she thought would be great for Good Friday so I thought hey let me look at that text and I looked at it and I thought man this is the text for today so thanks Sarah for for prompting us in the right direction today it was a good text so I'm gonna have a look at just a few verses from John chapter 18 John's Gospel chapter 18 and if you know John's Gospel it stands out from all of the other Gospels because it's uh, John has such a glorious and high view of the Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew while you're turning to John 18 and Matthew's Gospel remember Matthew writing 
mainly to a Jewish audience, and he's trying to show that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament prophecies. And Mark's Gospel, Mark is writing predominantly to his Greek counterparts, and he's like, yeah, Jesus is a real man. Did you see him doing this? And, you know, suddenly or immediately, Mark is always, ah, and then he was there, and then he was there. Look at this man, you know, a glorious man. Mark was taken up with the drama of Jesus' life. Luke, of course, you remember, wanted to speak of Jesus and present a view of his life in an ordered way, an ordered, a proper historical account. So that even in our day, we can look at Luke's gospel and we can say, wow, the word of God is spot on accurate, right down to the very words that Luke chose. And I'm not going to elaborate on that, but in studying some of these things, the archaeology and that, you find out when Luke distinguishes between the names of rulers, you suddenly realize just for a period of months, at that time, the name of the ruler changed and Luke got it right. You say, wow, <laughs> absolutely beautiful. But then when we come to John's gospel and we enter into John's gospel, John writes his gospel long after the other gospels have been written. And John looks at the whole picture of Jesus and he can't, go, can't, can't get over the fact that God walked among us. And he writes a glorious gospel from uh, the perspective of Jesus as God. God walking among his people. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God and the word was God. That's how he starts his gospel. And as we think of John's gospel in that sense, we come to John chapter 18 as we find the Lord Jesus Christ going into the garden of Gethsemane, into the, the garden across from the Kidron Valley where Jesus is arrested. But before we begin to look at these few verses, I'd like to just draw your attention to the story of a man in history and a lot of you probably know about this man, but his name was John Huss. John Huss was one of the most famous martyrs that ever lived and died for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. On the 6th of July, 1415, John Huss was condemned to death. Why? Because he believed a lot of the things that we here today believe. He believed that all true believers were, member, were members of the Church of Christ big shocking reality and they wanted to kill him for that he believed that the word of god the bible was the final authority for all people and they wanted to condemn him for that and thirdly they wanted to condemn him for the fact that he claimed that jesus christ was the head of the church and john huss they gave him opportunity after opportunity to recant to say i don't believe these things anymore but he couldn't how could, he, how could he recant? How could he stop believing those basic things that we believe? So John, John Huss, knowing, knowing what was going to happen to him, said to his accusers, I cannot go back, cannot go back on these beliefs. I find them true in the word of God. They took John Huss outside, you know, after a long process, they took him outside. They chained him to a stake by his neck and they piled wood and grass right up to his neck and they set him alight and John Huss died he was burnt to death for his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ but the point is that he knew what was going to happen when he said to them I can't go back on what I believe and as we encounter the Lord Jesus Christ Christ in John chapter 18 <clears throat> we see in verse 1 
It says there after, after he had prayed, after they had prayed there in the upper room, Jesus left with his disciples and he crossed the Kidron Valley. And it's, it's beautiful as we read John's account of the Lord Jesus because we notice this after he had prayed. And you know that what that means, after he had prayed, is referring to that great high priestly prayer in John chapter 17 in that beautiful upper room setting where Jesus is pouring out his heart to his Father and saying, Father, I've, I've finished the work that you sent me to accomplish. And he starts praying for his disciples that the Lord, his Father, would keep them through these terrible days that lie ahead. And not only that, but he's praying for us who will believe in his name as a result of the testimony of these disciples. And I love that phrase, you know, that after or when he had finished praying. This didn't all unravel like, oh no, oh no, there's somebody knocking at the door. I better cut this prayer short. In Jesus' experience, everything is always under his control beautifully. He crossed the Kidron Valley. And on the other side of the Kidron Valley, remember the text says there in verse 1 that there was an olive grove. And Jesus and his disciples go into the olive grove. And I can't read of Jesus going through into the olive grove across the Kidron Valley without thinking about King David a thousand, probably a thousand and seventy years before. If we look at the dates... And David is, is fleeing Jerusalem because his son Absalom wants to overthrow his king, wants to overthrow his own dad. And David goes over the Kidron Valley weeping with all of his officials, all of his faithful friends and the people who had supported him in his kingdom. And David had the power, obviously the most glorious king this world's ever seen, he had the power to overthrow his son Absalom. But with that great power, he decides to flee his own son rather than confront him. We, we say, why? You know, why didn't you just send some guys to arrest your son and imprison him for a while till he calms down and squash this thing? But David goes out mourning. He goes over the Kidron Valley exactly where the Lord Jesus goes over the Kidron Valley. A king in a state of sadness. A king with a heavy heart. He has the power to overthrow his enemies, but he goes over with a sad heart. A cool evening, inside of the olive grove there's a press, and the press is used for crushing olives, for squashing them so hard that all of the oil comes out. And you can imagine as he goes in there, that's about what's going to happen to him as he comes into that olive grove. Jesus is facing a crushing, as we were reading in Isaiah 53, that pleased his father to crush him. Jesus is going into the crusher as he goes into the olive grove. And in verse 2, we notice how this narrative begins to pick up. Nothing's really happening as he, he finishes praying and then he goes into the, the, the olive grove across the Kidron Valley. Then we notice something begins to happen. Suddenly the risk in this narrative begins to develop. And it says there, now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place. Because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. And the interesting thing here about Judas who betrayed him. Now when we're reading this narrative. You may, what do you mean Judas betrayed him? No, nothing's happened yet. How can we say Judas betrayed him? Because Jesus hasn't betrayed him yet, obviously. And you know, to make sense of this. You know, we're looking at a, what they call a prison act of participle. Which means that Judas who was in the act of betraying him. 
Judas coming into the garden is an act of betraying Jesus. He's in the act of busy betraying Jesus. He's doing that presently. While he's walking, every step he takes is an act toward his betrayal. Now Judas, like coming into the garden in the act of betraying the Lord Jesus, he knows the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. And if you look at this word betrayal, you find out that it's probably meant to be taken as an act of conspiracy rather than just an act of betraying, like betraying somebody's confidence. If you tell me a secret and I tell somebody else I've betrayed you, but that has no political significance, does it? But it has political significance if one man is trying to overthrow a king. You know, if my lie or the information that I share overthrows an authority, that's conspiracy. It's, it has political consequences. So now Judas... He's, he's committing an act of conspiracy. He's coming in and he's trying to overthrow a king. He's trying to destroy a king. And he's trying to shift power into the hands of other people. And you can see how diabolical this act is. As Jesus is busy conspiring. He's busy in the act of trying to overthrow this King Jesus. This glorious man. And I think of the fact that Judas knew this place because... He had often met there. Jesus had often met there with his disciples. He knew so much about Jesus, didn't he? He had just been in the upper room with the Lord Jesus Christ. He'd been sitting at the table with the Lord of glory. He'd been dipping his bread into the bowl at the table with Jesus. Jesus had treated him like a friend. So that none of the other disciples even knew that Judas was the betrayer. And here he comes. He's gone out. Remember, he went out and it was night. And he comes back into the garden because he thought, yeah, I know where Jesus is going to be tonight. He's going to go pray with his disciples. He always does that. And you think of the intimacy that Judas had to override in order to capture Jesus in the garden. He had to go not only against a political figure, you know, that he considered a king, the Lord of glory, but he had to go against his friend. He had to betray his friend. He had to go against that friendship. So you can see the tension, this, this man coming into the, into the garden and he's, and he's um, in the act of betraying, he's in the act of committing conspiracy. The tension increases. Suddenly the risk mounts as we see more details. I just realized while I'm talking I didn't give the guys my, my presentation. <laughs> I thought, are we still in place? But I don't see anything. So sorry guys. <laughs> It's in my pocket on my phone. <laughs> I can send it to you, Philip, if, if you want to pop it on. Eh? That's what we do here. We just roll with it. Eh? Um, no, let me not do it because it's in my uh, Google Drive. I'll have to go find it. <laughs> you guys can read the text, okay? So the tension increases here. Suddenly, suddenly the risk mounts, okay? The risk begins to mount. As, as Judas comes into the grove... He's not just walking in as an act of betrayal, but he's leading this band of soldiers, this cohort of soldiers. And with those soldiers, there are temple gods. And with those temple gods, you've got the Pharisees and you've got the teachers of the law. And they're all following him, this big mass, this crowd of people coming into the garden. If we look at what this must have meant, we, we can measure somewhere between about two and six hundred people. Of following Judas into the garden to capture one man Jesus why would Judas bring so many people well he's seen Jesus power 
You've seen how Jesus gets out of situations where one occasion where they wanted to stone him, he just slips through the crowd and he's gone. And they can't understand it. How did he just walk away when they were all trying to kill him? Amazing power. So Judas knows, he tells them, you know, if you're going to capture this man, you need to come with force. You need to do this fast. You need to finish this thing off quickly. You need to just kill him. Otherwise, there's going to be trouble. Catch him unsuspecting. Catch him while he's praying. You know, something like these terrorists who come into churches and shoot people dead while they're praying in a church service. That's Judas. Catch him. Catch him while he's not expecting it. So you can see the risk coming. Here's Jesus praying in the garden with his disciples, unaware seemingly of anything that's going on around him. He's told his disciples, keep watch, but his disciples are sleeping in the other gospel accounts. And this Judas is coming, sneaking into the garden with this huge mass of men to come and arrest him. They're carrying torches, lanterns and weapons. And what are they expecting? <laughs> They're expecting a war. I mean, this Jesus is unarmed. And if we combine this with the other, the other Gospels, we think of Jesus having spent so much time praying in the garden and sweating great drops like blood, you know, blood-stained sweat. And you can imagine what his garments must have looked like as he was in the garden there coming out. At that moment, we see Jesus in this blood-stained garment. He must have looked a, must have looked a fright. Must have looked terrible as he comes out here. And the question is, how is Jesus going to escape this? If I was unarmed and I had a few friends with me, and I was in an olive grove, it's not like even a police station nearby, you know, even, not that that's any good for him. But six, two to six hundred people armed with lights, he can't hide away in the darkness. How is he going to escape this? It seems that he's absolutely trapped and there's no way out. If Jesus is captured, what are the implications? What's going to happen if, if Jesus is captured? What's going to happen to his disciples? What hope will they have? Of course, the disciples know he's not going to get captured. Because how could Jesus get captured? I mean, it's impossible. He's, he's the King of Kings. He's come to liberate us. And as, the, as John begins to increase the tension in this text... He says to us what Jesus does in response. Verse 4, Jesus went out and asked them, Who is it that you want? I don't know about you, but if I was that guy, if I was Jesus in the garden, and there's two to six hundred people coming to hunt me in the garden, and they've got torches, you know, lanterns, they're looking around in the dark and they can't find me yet, I would be the one running for shelter. But Jesus, the man that he was, he steps out and he says to them, Who is it that you want? Obviously it's him. Who do you want? There has to be an identification of this man in the garden. That's why Judas is there, the betrayer. He's the one who comes to kiss Jesus and say, The one I kiss, that's the one. It's him. Arrest him. And they're standing there. John's gospel doesn't in include the kiss. But as Jesus comes out and he identifies himself, he says, who is it that you want? But that's, that's not all Jesus does. You know, there's, there's another modifying clause in the sentence. Jesus doesn't just go out and ask. He doesn't just perform those two actions, stepping out and saying to them, who do you want? 
He does that knowing what is going to happen to him. Every single detail of what's about to happen, he knows what's going to happen. He knows that they're going to arrest him. He knows that his disciples are going to flee and leave him alone in the garden. He knows that he's going to go through a terrible mock trial. He knows that he's going to be beaten. He knows that he's going to be flogged. He knows that he's going to be hit in the face with sticks. He knows that he's going to be crowned with a crown of thorns. He knows that he's going to be crucified. He knows that night he's going to die. And knowing all of that, like John Huss, you remember, knowing what I'm going to be burnt at the stake, but I'm going to step out and I'm going to say this is where I stand. And Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, Who is it that you want? Obviously, they respond. They respond. <laughs> and they say, Jesus of Nazareth. I mean, that's what probably what they've been told to say. When you know, when you're looking for who you're looking for. The soldiers are like, Who's you know, who are we after in the garden? Oh, it's this guy called Jesus of Nazareth. And they probably just repeat those orders. It's interesting that Jesus, in this state of knowing, uh, I love the grammar, I always love grammar because it's so, you know, it explains so many details. But this is not just a fact of knowing, this is, this is a perfect, what they call a perfect participle, which means Jesus began to know at a particular point. It became clearer and clearer to him over time, and that knowing was having an effect on him now in the garden. It was an ongoing knowledge. It was like, this is obvious. I can see. This is how it develops. I can see this is going to happen. I can see this is going to happen. I can see this is going to happen. It's a perfect tense. It's not just like he knew at one point in history. It's not that he was just presently knowing. It's that he came to this knowledge over a period of time. It began at a previous point. And that knowledge began to become clearer and clearer and clearer to him as he saw the events developing around him. And that's beautiful as Jesus begins to drink in the full weight of this experience. He goes out and he identifies himself to them. He looks powerless, obviously, in his blood-stained robe. But he's confident. I'm sure these soldiers, they, they think, what is wrong with this guy? What did he just step out here for? I mean, we didn't even have to chase him down. They were probably expecting a fight. They were probably expecting to chase him down through the olive grove. But he just comes out. They think, this guy's crazy. You know, why would he step out? I mean, obviously we're going to arrest him. It's done for him. He could have got away. Jesus of Nazareth, they reply in verse 5. And you've got to contrast the soldier's sort of dumb soldier ignorance to Jesus knowing all that was about to happen. He knows everything they're going to do. But they're just walking in to capture some guy. Half of them probably don't even know who he is. And we think of the universal and eternal consequences of this moment. Then as we look at the scene unfolding, we come to the key. We come to the moment that this whole story is all about. We've started in the garden where it just seems to be like an ordinary night. Then we've seen the tension developing as Judas is coming into the garden as an act of betrayal. And then we see the, 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 the tension mounting in the story... As we notice that Judas is, is followed by, by hundreds of soldiers and teachers of the law and Pharisees. And as Jesus steps out and he, 
and he identifies himself to these people. This is the key of this whole text. Jesus simply says, I am. I am. I know in the English translations it says, I am he. But that he is not in, in the original. The original simply says, I am. And what is I am? Ego eimi. Literally what Jesus says, ego eimi. I am. And you know, it wasn't long before when the Jews wanted to stone him for saying that. Why? Why did they want to stone him for saying ego eimi? Because he's saying, I am God. When he steps out, he's saying, I am Yahweh. In the Greek, in the, in the Hebrew Old Testament, the Tetragrammaton is the name of God, Yahweh, the four-letter word. And Yahweh literally means, I am, or it, it means, I am the one who causes to be. In other words, as Jesus is standing there with these soldiers, and they say to him, they want to know who he is, and he is, I am the cause of you. You exist because of me. It's by my word that your heart keeps beating. You stand here by my power. You exist by my power. Don't you even recognize me? <laughs> Imagine. The guys can't even see who this is. He's the cause. He's the final cause of all things. I am. I'm the one who causes all things to be. I'm Yahweh. I'm God Almighty. And he stands there and I, I can't even get over that one moment. But Jesus is not like, hey, how dare you touch me? Do you realize who I am? He just speaks his name in that moment. And suddenly there's a shift of power. God speaks the name of God in that God. And in that moment, you read in verse 6, when Jesus said, I am, or I am he, in this translation, they drew back and fell to the ground. And this, this is two actions. Some people say, some commentators are saying that what happened is that everybody fell on their faces to worship him. And I don't think that that's true because, one, the text says they drew back. And literally when they're drawing back, they're sort of staggering backwards. And then they fall. They fall to the ground. And this is not just a fall. It's not just like they tripped over a clump of grass or something. The, the language describes a type of falling where someone is shoved over. So like this, this invisible force just shoves these guys and they all end up on their backs on the ground. A second reason why I don't think they fell on their faces is because immediately after they'd arrest Jesus and hand him over to trial. If they were all worshipping him, imagine those two to six hundred soldiers go back to the, the Jewish leaders and say, no, we couldn't arrest him. That happened before, didn't it? No one ever spoke the way this man speaks. Why didn't you arrest him? His words when he was speaking to us. And they're like, I don't, don't understand this. What was happening with his words? And you had to be there to hear his words. He spoke with authority. And here Jesus speaks. He just says, I am. Boom. All of these soldiers are flat on their backs on the ground. Who's in charge of this moment? I mean, Jesus is the victim, isn't he? But he's a deliberate victim. He's deliberately making himself a victim here. Just this one little display of power that wipes them right off their feet. They realize this, this man is in charge. I can imagine them looking at their weapons, their swords and their clubs, thinking, oh, what am I going to do with this? You know, who knows? Maybe some of them were hiding their weapons so that he wouldn't see that they'd brought a weapon. I mean, how do you fight against this kind of power? 
And they're lying on the ground. In verse 7, the next thing that happens, Jesus says, again he asks, Who is it that you want? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. <laughs> You're like, oh yeah, the same old, the same old phrase that's coming out. That's what they've been told to say, you know. Like, I don't know what just happened, but we're looking for Jesus. Maybe they still didn't even know that it was Him. Maybe they thought, gee, this guy's powerful, but where's Jesus? You know, where's the guy we're supposed to arrest? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth, verse 8, Jesus said, I told you that I am He, or I am. Jesus answered, if you are looking for me, then let these men go. Speaking about His disciples, this happened, verse 9 says, so that the words He had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. So there are two key issues in this text. The one is that Jesus has to be identified. Is Jesus identified? Is God identified in the garden? It's obvious. It's obvious that His identity is clear. The second thing is that when Jesus is arrested, those disciples must go free. Why? Because it's prophesied that not one will be lost. They, the, the, the disciples are not going to be crucified with Jesus. And I think that's absolutely wonderful when we see Jesus and all the power of God. The power of God is at Jesus' disposal to keep His people safe. To keep me safe and to keep you safe. And I'm a living testimony to God's preserving power till this day. I mean, imagine, I've, I've done everything in my life to ruin my own life. But God, by His grace, you've heard me say this before, He preserves fools. And I'm evidence that God provides, God preserves fools. And I'm sure you're an, you're an evidence of that as well. If you look at your own life, God preserved you through so much folly. But as, as the story goes on, we've, we've reached the point of the story. And you think, okay, well everything's going to wind down from here. And of course, suddenly this reckless moment takes place. This is another sort of a surprise little climax that takes place. And Peter, of course, he's standing there and he sees Jesus speak. He just uses two words, I am. Ego me, and woof, these soldiers are flat on the ground. And of course, Peter's like, yeah, you know, pulls out his sword, he's ready. Okay, you know, should we hit them while they're down? You know, almost like when Jesus with his disciples and they said, should we call fire down from heaven to destroy these people? Because Lord, they're not listening to you. You can imagine Peter thinking, are we winning? Obviously, we knew we were going to win because this is the king. How can this king be defeated? So Peter's like, okay, this is the moment. The kingdom's coming. We're going to do this thing. And it seems he's the only one with a sword. And he pulls out his sword and he strikes the servant of the high priest on the ear and one ear off. Peter's winning. It's like, yeah, he's helping Jesus to do this thing. And you can imagine Peter's surprise in the moment where Jesus in verse 11 commanded Peter, Put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? I think the soldiers and the teachers of the law, the Pharisees, were confused when they first met Jesus. And he just speaks, ego, me, and poof, they're all on, on the ground. They were confused, but now Peter's confused. Nobody can work out what Jesus is doing now. Like, what is this? You know, put your sword away. I mean, aren't we going to take this opportunity? And Jesus says to them, shall, shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? I'm almost Peter's like, no, Lord, <laughs> what cup? And Jesus knew what was in the cup. He knew what was lying ahead. 
He knew what death he was going to face. He knew that he was going to purchase Peter for himself through that death. And Peter puts his sword back and remember all of his disciples flee. And they desert Jesus in the garden as he's arrested and taken to trial. And eventually nailed to the cross. And he dies. As we remember John Huss. We see John Huss being accused of preaching heresy. Which is what we all believe in this church. The basics of what we believe. John Huss is on that stake. And the fire is burning. But the fire doesn't want to burn. You know, the sort of stories say that, um, you know, the fire just wouldn't burn. So other people were coming and trying to get the fire going, you know, trying to make the flames go. But it was a long and, and difficult death for him. But, you know, when John Huss died, when he was martyred as a, as a heretic, 100 years later, a man by the name of Martin Luther discovers the writings of John Huss. And he begins to read them, a Roman Catholic monk. And he's like, yo, what is this guy saying? And Martin Luther was so overwhelmed by what John has taught that he sparked the beginning of a reformation that has lasted hundreds of years. In fact, many of the governments around the world, even our government, are enjoying the blessings of that revelation hundreds of years later. Sparked a glorious uh, chain reaction, the death of John Huss. And we think of the death of our great Lord Jesus Christ as Jesus drinks that cup he sparks a revolution. He sparks a reformation. He sparks something that is so beautiful and so glorious that it still hasn't ended. Thousands of years later, millions of souls purchased for God by that blood. And you and I are here today as a result of the fact that we see Jesus stepping forward in the garden and saying, Ego Amy, I am.